and welcome to the Ethical Marketing Podcast. This podcast we're going to devote solely to our regular chat on risk management and ethical marketing. We have our special guest for this segment, Dr. Andrew Lumsden-Groom, Director of Crisis Management at 181st Street, and we're going to talk about Spotify. If you've been watching the news or reading anything online, you've probably heard about Spotify's current situation, and it's why we've decided to devote a whole podcast towards it. It all started on January the 12th when 270 medical professionals sent an open letter to Spotify asking them to institute a misinformation policy. The letter specifically referenced episode 1757 of the Joe Rogan experience featuring Dr. Robert Malone as an issue. The letter spoke against the mass misinformation events which the professionals stated continued to occur on the platform. Twelve days later, on January the 24th, Neil Young called attention to the letter in a now-deleted open letter posted on his website, where he spoke about Spotify spreading fake information about vaccines and stating he wanted all of his music off their platform. He said they can have Rogan or Young, not both. On January the 26th, Spotify removed all of Neil Young's music from its website, saying, We regret Neil's decision to remove his music from Spotify, but we hope to welcome him back soon. Following this, two days later, Joni Mitchell announced she would join Young in removing her music from the platform, After this, other artists such as E Street Band's Nils Lofgren followed suit. Following a building boycott, Spotify announced it would take measures to add advisories to podcasts that discussed COVID-19. The company also said it would update the platform rules and that rule-breaking content would be removed from the platform. An internal memo revealed that Joe Rogan's podcast, however, did not meet the threshold for removal. It took nearly a week later on January the 30th for Joe Rogan to issue a formal statement, which he did via his Instagram page. He released a 10-minute video addressing Neil Young and Joni Mitchell directly, and in it explained that his podcasts are conversations he's having with all kinds of people. He thanked Spotify for being supportive of his show, and he said that he disagreed with the shows being labelled as misinformation, but he did agree with the COVID-19 advisories. On February the 1st, Neil Young's former bandmate Graham Nash announced he'd be removing his music from the platform. On the same day, Indy Ari announced that she was going to remove her music. She said, I've decided to pull my music and podcast from Spotify. Neil Young opened a door that I must walk through. I believe in freedom of speech. However, I find Joe Rogan problematic for reasons other than his COVID interviews. For me, it also amounts to his language around race. What I am talking about is respect and who gets it and who doesn't. It became clear that Ari was referring to multiple times that Joe Rogan had used the N-word on his podcast while speaking about race. On February the 4th, Spotify removed around 70 episodes of the Joe Rogan experience from its platform. Joe Rogan offered an apology for the video featuring supercuts of all his uses of the N-word. He tries to offer context to the conversation, saying that he was discussing the use of the N-word itself from past comedians. That's the timeline. Here's what we had to say. How does that man find the time to record that many podcasts? I mean, it takes... If you were getting paid that many millions, you were, didn't you? Yeah, that's true. If someone paid me a hundred... If, if someone paid us 110 million pounds to make this podcast, you'd be getting it a lot more often than you are. We would find the time, yeah. So what was interesting about it was really Spotify, how they dealt with it, a bit about how Joe Rogan dealt with it and how it all sort of came together on that front. So we thought we'd have a bit of a chat about that. And from my perspective, I found it really bizarre. I found their choices really strange. I'm so used to seeing companies realize they've made a mistake and and try and act on it rather than a company just going, 
we don't really care what you think, we're just going to do it. Now, to some people, I imagine that's quite refreshing, but I do wonder when you're talking about giving out false medical information, whether that has quite the same charm. I would say, first and foremost, the first, well, not the first problem Spotify had, because there were many, many, many first problems. I think one of the things is the psychology. They don't consider themselves to be a publisher. There are many, many, many other problems that I'm sure we'll get to over the course of this podcast. But that initial, let's call it, self-surety in not being a publisher from a legal perspective, which is an argument Facebook have used for years, it's straight out of the Facebook playbook. But it does mean that they don't feel responsible for the content. However, they just did not understand that you stick your logo all over something and pay $110 million for it, the public will consider you to own it. Your staff will consider you to own it. And your investors certainly will because they just paid $100 million for it. So three of your five major stakeholder groups literally think you own it. How on earth do you, whether you think you're a publisher or not for legal reasons, how on earth do you stand up and say, this is nothing to do with us, and actually expect that answer to be taken over? One of the things I teach in all crisis scenarios is if your response to a crisis has more than five words in it, nobody is listening to you. Nobody cares. You can say it as much as you want, but nobody is listening to you. Nobody is believing you and you are going to lose. If you can't get it down to a five word answer, you cannot fight back. You have to minimize damage. If you can get it down to a five word answer, you might be able to fight back. Might being an operative phrase there. They're, yeah, the not publisher thing, is, as you say, it's something Facebook's used for years, YouTube have, have tried to use it, and it's a way of saying you don't have responsibility for what's said on your platform. And I think nobody buys that anymore. I think if anything that comes out of the Trumpian era, it is that platforms are starting to have to take responsibility for things that are published on them. As I say, it was something that Facebook tried and have continually tried in order to not have to police their own platforms. But I think part of the problem is they play both sides. So these platforms are publishers when they want to be. And then as soon as they're held accountable, they're like, oh, we're just a platform. We're not a publisher. So if they were a publisher, and the same applies to Joe Rogan, if he was a journalist, there would be journalistic standards he would have to adhere to that would govern the type of content and the the level of balance and things that he would have to present. But it's his show. He can say and do what he wants. And that's kind of the defense he went with was I'm just a podcaster. I don't really know what I'm doing. And then Spotify backed that and said the same, you know, we're not a publisher. We're not accountable for this. It makes you wonder who they think is accountable for it though, because surely there has to be accountability. And reading the things that Spotify said that one of the lines was, that there are lines that we must put down and then we will be aware and you know take action when they cross them but if they're not telling anybody what those lines are then they're pointless they're absolutely pointless well let's i'm sorry but let's start with the fact that and as i'm sure listeners will be able to tell i know you've only heard me once before but you'll be able to tell it quite how quite how irate i am over this one the number of regrettable mistakes we will get to shortly my ire, as it were, 
starts with Spotify at some point made a decision to go into exclusive podcasts. They did no risk assessment of that. They did no analysis of what could go wrong. I've looked at all the investor packs. I've looked at everything they've pumped out to, in the process of effectively buying the Joe Rogan experience. And I cannot find anywhere any risk mitigation around communications and the possibility that something goes wrong. I can't find anything that says we thought about this and we considered it. Now, I know I am going to be quite boring as these podcasts go on on certain things, but one of them is do your ESG and then do your risk assessments. Somebody qualified should be stewarding your brand, even if it's just for a couple of hours every quarter, somebody should be going, tell you what, if we buy this enormous podcast, we should probably at least listen to them all before we put them up and see if they meet our publishing guidelines that apparently have existed forever, we just haven't told anybody about. Instead, Spotify put it all up without looking at it, stuck their brand all over it without looking at it, and nobody at any point said, what is this content that we are tying our logo, our brand, and our fortunes to? Because let's not forget Daniel Ek, the CEO, has lost a billion dollars because of his interesting decision-making. Yeah, and you don't hire someone like Joe Rogan without being very aware of the controversy around him as a character. He's, he's not come from nowhere. Well, that's what you're paying for. You're right, Stuart. That's what... That's what they paid for. They paid for that um, controversy because controversy gets headlines. Controversy creates click-through. Do you think then that, because part of the sort of what I took from them is that Spotify kind of feel like there's nobody else as good as what they do as what they do. And actually what will happen is it will blow over because the public are not willing to move elsewhere and that maybe they don't care enough. And I did wonder, because that kind of came across to me, but that might be just me reading too much into it. But it sort of felt like he felt, well, look, we're, we're so big. We can kind of do what we want. They can. I mean, I'm not going to disagree there. I mean, they're losing but somewhere in the region of 120,000 paid accounts, which roughly works out to be about $7 million a week, which in terms of their revenue is 2 3%. So, yeah, okay, they'll have lost maybe 50, 60 million worth of revenue because the average subscription for Spotify is about 12 months. Um, so they'll have lost a, a good chunk. But actually... I think you're right, Stuart. I don't think they have to worry. They'll survive this. But this is not your standard crisis. This is nowhere near your standard crisis. This is the worst type of crisis you can possibly have. It's death by a thousand cuts. Okay, the Joe Rogan story may die, but it will be replaced by something else. And that will be replaced by something else. They haven't got their ESG in place. They haven't got control, Spotify that is, they haven't got control over what they're buying and where. They are highly dependent on the exclusive podcast to make them unique. And that's just other bits of this current story that scream, somebody is coming for you at some point, let alone what you were saying um, on our WhatsApp chats, Stuart. Yes, one of the things we spoke about as well is that there's a growing number of musicians who are just becoming more and more unhappy with the 
very, very small amount that you can make off of Spotify. And that over time, as people become more and more powerful, I think you will find more and more musicians. Maybe some of the smaller ones initially will step away from it. I certainly know some musicians who have pulled their catalogs. And again, they probably weren't the big hitters, but it's only a matter of time, I think, before that happens. Somebody pointed out to me that you can buy an album on Bandcamp and the money that an artist will make from the average sale of Bandcamp is more than they would make if that album was played continuously on Spotify for three years. Am I right in thinking that the average payment per stream from Spotify is about 0.003 of a cent and the Amazon and Apple as the big competitors within the market are more like double, if not triple that figure. I mean, none of them are good. None of them are uh, none of them are good for artists, except for being able to get the stuff out there. Nowadays, it is playing live that often makes the difference for an artist. That and selling the merchandise. So selling directly, streaming obviously doesn't do anything except maybe get your name out there a bit. It used to be record sales were the most important thing. Why has that stopped? Is it not because of Spotify and Apple and streaming and Amazon, to be fair, and name all three? Is it not because of streaming services? I think it's because, partially because of streaming services, but within that, it's because people consume music differently. There was a time when in order to buy the one song you really liked, you generally had to go out and buy an album. That was the only way you could do it. So you were maybe buying 10 songs instead of buying the one that you really liked. Now, you might discover that you loved the other nine songs. But I'm not going to say there's a few times I bought albums based on one song and went, oh, really? (laughs) That was by far the best song. This has changed now because you can go on Spotify, you can go and you can listen to the songs you want to listen to. And I think it works in different ways because it means that you can have a playlist that is built up entirely of songs you really, really want. I think the playlist feature actually is it's a huge draw. and But the other thing is what it takes away from is that sometimes when you buy these albums for one song, you discover that you love everything else in the album that you now won't give a chance to because you won't have necessarily that chance to hear it. How we've consumed music based on technology has, has changed. If I say I think that's sad, it's because my musical tastes hit within the albums. I'm a big fan of albums. I think this is partly where Spotify have gone wrong is that they've approached this as the customer is always right sort of mentality and they've thought about it from the perspective of even customers subscribers that don't agree with joe rogan are probably not going to cancel obviously we've seen that people are cancelling but that's actually been driven by big artists pulling their music and that has been the thing and when they approach this i don't think they considered the artists would do that in response to this. And actually, there's very personal reasons for doing that. So Neil Young and Joni Mitchell both had polio when they were children. So obviously, very strong advocates for vaccines and have pulled their music. And I think Joni Mitchell wrote a letter in support of Neil Young explaining her reasoning for that. And I think when Spotify have approached this, they've gone, the subscribers won't cancel because it's too much of an inconvenience to move all your playlists and to cancel. And it's such a low amount of money every month that it will just blow over and it won't be too much of a problem. They've not thought about those other audiences that are going to be affected by this and are then going to leverage their power. And actually, like you said, Andrew, is death by a thousand cuts because they are so reliant on these exclusive podcasts to be their differentiator in the market but if they carry on like that the US government in particular is so hot on big tech at the moment and on this whole thing about are you a publisher are you not they're going to get caught out on those grounds eventually as well 
Mm. I think sticking with the audience thing, I mean, on the regulation piece, there are no guarantees under British law as to freedom of speech, as far as I'm aware. I mean, obviously, if you are a lawyer and you can tell me different, please do write in. As far as I'm aware, there are no guarantees as to freedom of speech under British law. There are, however, very clear rules about hate speech, etc., etc., and as a result of that, if Joe Rogan continues to do what, what he's doing and Spotify continue, and this is my big thing, they continue not to control or vet the things they are fundamentally purchasing or are seen to be purchasing, it will become questionable as to whether or not they will be considered responsible for the content in the United Kingdom, which would mean separate lawsuits and UK European law really isn't that far apart. You're looking at creating problems region by region that will keep popping up. And all it takes is one set of hate speech, one set of anything that breaks the Disability Discrimination Act in the United Kingdom and the equivalents in Europe, and they will be in serious trouble. Obviously, they have reporting systems in place for that. But as we know, Spotify aren't vetting their own content. You pull 113 episodes four weeks into a crisis. How, when the crisis happened, did nobody go, you know what, we should have listened to it before we put it up, but come on, four weeks into a crisis and nobody thought somebody is going to go through and watch them. That is, my mentor had a rule, rule number 15. Can you remember everything you said because a journalist bloody well can? That is it. We live in an age where a newspaper will quite happily have people on minimum wage sit and, sit and listen to every single one of those podcasts. If you haven't done that for your hundred and odd million investment, you are going to get hit. And every time Spotify brings on another exclusive that has the viability to attract new audiences to Spotify, the chances are it's going to sit on one extreme or another. It's got to be noisy to build an audience because let's be honest here, these big exclusives are effectively clickbait. They are designed to pull people in to use the rest of the Spotify service and to never leave. And Spotify have been very clear about that. David Eck has basically said, if they want to grow to half a billion subscribers, they are going to have to dance with the devil effectively. What do you think about how... Spotify and David Eck dealt with their staff. I mean, obviously we need to talk about the investors and how they behaved, but my big one would be, how do you think they dealt with their staff? I think that's another big area where they've had problems. And that's actually where this crisis is going to continue to snowball because they have positioned themselves as this young, fun, values-driven brand to come and work for us. And they've used that as a real selling point for talent attraction and then basically gone against that internal brand that they've created in the way that they have defended this and in the way that they've just stood by and said, you know, it's nothing to do with us. That's obviously not what employees were looking for. And we can see that because it's employees that are constantly leaking information to the media now. And actually on that hat tip to The Verge, I have to hat tip them for their sheer audacity recordings of town hall meetings recordings of everything whoever is leaking to them 
honestly, well done for building that relationship and knowing the storm was coming. Do we all agree that we saw this coming well before Neil Young? I think as soon as this was announced, something was going to happen. As soon as as it became public knowledge, the the vaccine debate is such a polarising one that you were going to have people on both sides who were going to take some kind of action on it. So I'd be really interested to see what would happen if Taylor Swift and Adele had decided to pull their music. Because I feel Neil Young is... It is evident that Spotify were willing to change the whole way their system worked for Adele. They weren't even willing initially to put a warning on to the podcasts for Neil Young. I have a real problem with the way Spotify dealt with that. Because if Spotify looked at their own user data, they would have found the Neil Young audience is the second fastest growing audience they have. It's also incredibly, in terms of demographic targeting, it is incredibly brand loyal. I mean, utterly brand loyal. Also, statistically, unlikely to change because the chances are somebody's put Spotify on the phone or said, I use this, you should use it too. It's been a personal recommendation at some point, if nothing else, because actually demographic information suggests that anybody below the age of about 70 now knows how to use a phone really well. And I don't think advertisers have taken that into account at all yet. However, that is their second largest audience. It is their just, only just shy of being their fastest growing audience. It is guaranteed revenue indefinitely for everyone you get. And yet somehow they don't consider Neil Young to be important. So this is where this whole story was interesting for me, because I think we're moving these platforms or whatever they want to call themselves traditionally have tried to be everything to everybody. And that was kind of Spotify's selling point for so long was that whatever your music tastes, it's on here. And same with the media that they're moving into and the the podcasts and things. But we know that we're in these echo chambers and we've talked before about echo chambers and actually it's getting harder and harder to have that mass market appeal because there's such consumer demand now for curation and personalization and being targeted in the right way. So what we're seeing is sites like Parler that are saying we are for this specific group of people who believe this specific set of values and we are quite happy to be an echo chamber and if you agree with us come over here and you'll find content so the platforms that are struggling are the facebook's and the spotify's who are still trying to be everything to everybody and actually when he stood up and and kind of defended this and was just like we don't really care what you think in his statement the ceo it kind of felt like he was moving towards that and he was starting to say, you know, we we are going to go in this more niche direction. That fundamentally doesn't work for their business model, but that's maybe the shift that they're thinking they need to make. Where they have fundamentally failed to do that is to look at actually who should we be for because who are our biggest audience groups? I don't disagree, Sean, that it did feel like he was going to go in that direction. But to be honest, I really feel he decided on a pro-investor message then turned up to a town hall meeting. Note to Spotify here, all CEO town halls are bad. They are fundamentally a very, very, very stupid idea. Everybody has disgruntled staff. Everybody. Everybody has disgruntled staff. Why put your CEO in a room with staff who are disgruntled? You're guaranteed that that is going to go wrong because people that are annoyed tend to want to tell the CEO they're annoyed, especially if they're being ignored everywhere else. 
and especially when you espouse liberal values publicly in all of your recruitment, then turn up and say what is effectively, we are not a publisher, so we have to have to let misinformation happen. And to grow, we need to deal with people we don't agree with. Yeah, fair enough. But that is not what you say to a staff who are average age 34, and you have sold the idea of creativity and openness and inclusivity. And then you have the scandals that have been associated, the multiple scandals with Joe Rogan. You can't square those circles. But if you know there's a problem, what on earth convinces a CEO to stand up in front of 200 of his staff and say, you know what, we have to work with the devil if we're going to make lots of money? It's a dangerous move at a time when tech companies are really in talent wars to try and get the best talent to alienate all of your staff. And he's going for that growth approach, but in completely the wrong way. He's just trying to appeal to everybody and actually alienating everybody by doing that. The reason they're buying these podcasts with exclusive deals is to bring in the audiences. He bought Joe Rogan's audience, but he's not thinking about the ecosystem of the brand and how these audiences work together and how to target them in a personalized way. That's growth now isn't just about your audience numbers and getting as many people as possible because you need to think sustainably about how are you going to keep those audiences and really tap into their values and that's where there's been no risk assessment no audience analysis no targeting and you've just created a mess i wonder if they had done the bare minimum that they have done now which is put that warning up If they had done that immediately, I think it would have de-escalated it an awful lot. It's the fact that they held out and were like, no, we are absolutely fine with this. We will do whatever that made it into a bigger thing. And it now means that they have to do more for less of an effect. There's a lot of similarities between this and the Peloton story that we covered last time in that our general conclusion on that story was if they had kept their heads down and laid low, it would go away the crisis snowballed because of the response. And I think that's the same here. I don't think this was one that they could just keep their head down and wait for it to go away. But actually the way they responded to it and continue to respond to it is what has kept this going and really escalated it into something very problematic in a number of different areas. So this is effectively what we do for a living. If Spotify had hired people that were crisis trained and had experience, then suspended Joe Rogan for a couple of weeks, put on warnings that should have existed anyway. I mean, Instagram had them. And let's be honest, Facebook doesn't do anything that it doesn't feel is necessary. And then gone through Rogan's back catalogue, had people actually listen to it and make pull out everything that was wrong, put it back up, put the warnings on, had a better apology from Joe Rogan, because we haven't even talked about the apology, and done that immediately within four or five days because one of the things with these types of um, death by a thousand cuts crises is the swiftness of the response is helpful because as Sean said you've got to if you can't keep your head below the parapet you've got to stick it above so you've got to have a plan and a quick plan at that but none of that would have been a lot to do and I think you're right Stuart would any If they'd done that, would we even be having this conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things where, you know, we do this talk so we can talk about what we would have done that would have made it better. But I think it's also important to say, you know, I think this one's a strange one because I think all three of us were just staring at the screen going, 
what? 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 It started off and you thought, oh, well, this, this is not good for Spotify, but, you know, it won't take much. They'll just apologize for it. They'll, they'll stick a warning up or take it down and that'll be fine. We'll move on to the next story. And it just grew arms and legs because, and it, was, it only did that because of Spotify's response. This whole story just highlights how quickly communications crises can snowball into a business crisis. And the fact that companies don't assess their communications risks and they don't think about the knock-on effect this can have, this will fundamentally change the company culture at Spotify for the long term. It will fundamentally affect their recruitment and their staff retention. It will cost them a lot more money in the staff they're going to lose over the next six to 12 months because it's going to take them time to leave and replace them. And it's going to snowball and have that lasting impact that actually is going to be felt in a lot of different ways just from this one mishandling of a communications crisis. And I think that kind of shows how important your job is, Andrew, because it is showing that you really do need someone to step in and tell you to shut up sometimes. I never step in on my own. We are team after all and you can't do it on your own because there are too many moving parts it's why it's expensive and it's why very few companies have on staff teams but it's also why it's so necessary because it is a specialist skill and I think that's what gets me really irate in this stuff is that I live by a set of rules I operate by a set of rules that that I was taught those rules were learned over a long time I have done somewhere in the region of 250 to 300 crises, and I have never, ever seen one as badly handled as Spotify, where they became the problem. I guess it didn't even just become the problem, they became the story. Completely. You could have effectively killed that story in five days, no problem at all. I possibly could have even killed it before Neil Young, but the story itself could have been dealt with after the initial 250 doctors published. That's where I would have wanted to deal with the crises. I would have wanted to deal with the possibility that that letter led to a backlash and proactively solved that problem. 90% of crisis is done before the crisis even begins. If you've done it properly, you're trying to avoid crises and the ones that are left should be the ones that nobody can see coming. Fundamentally, I think the moral of this story is that you can't be everything to everyone unless you are going to cleverly target your audiences and tailor your messaging to them. One other point would be when you're going through a crisis, it's worth remembering to constantly assess, adapt, improve. In other words, if you're constantly assessing what is working and what isn't, you're also becoming aware in that process of the fact that your staff hate you or that you are talking to investors that no longer want to hear what you are saying. And you can then assess, adapt and change your your approach to minimise the damage. Whilst you're going through a crisis, it's important to not make it worse, but it's also important to try and pull yourself out of it. So it's sort of looked like a curve. You should go in and things get worse, but everything you're putting in place all the way down shortens the length of that curve and also takes out the depth of it. And what you're left with is a shallow curve. If you've assessed every step of the way, that's what it should look like. It should not look like a heart monitor after a 90-year-old man has just run 50 miles. 
which is roughly what the Spotify issue looks like. So in short, assess, adapt, implement. And in that assessment and that adaptation, you will minimise your risks, but you'll also be able to adjust because one of the things that Spotify really struggled with in this crisis is the fact that they did something wrong and then they did it again. Joe Rogan episode that created the problem, first week back from a week-long, the first episode back from a week-long break, said something else that was factually untrue. And then you have the CEO who does a town hall, not the greatest idea, and then sends an email saying exactly the same thing. At which point, does anybody believe that's not being leaked? We see Spotify take time to implement something and then for the CEO to come out and publicly say to investors to say, we stand by our content guidelines. People go away, watch all the Joe Rogan podcasts and say, what about the racial epithets? What about this? What about that? What about this? And it becomes a what about attack at that point. Spotify pull another chunk of content. But why say that your content guidelines work? Nobody is believing your content guidelines work if four days later you have to pull 10% of a total batch of content that cost you $100 million. That means you roughly just lost, well, 8 to 10%. So you lost between 8 and $10 million in theory, in terms of asset. Investors don't like that. So by thinking about it logically, by processing it slowly and always assessing that, that walkthrough, you will protect yourselves. So in the blog post that you wrote, Andrew, about this whole situation, you made a really good point that in terms of this crisis developing, it's going to be death by a thousand cuts for them. This isolated incident isn't going to be what kills off Spotify, but actually their whole approach and the mismanagement and probably the things to come down the line are going to be really significant. So what do we see coming next in terms of this crisis developing or the next crisis potentially brewing off the back of this? One of the things that's happened over the last week or so is that Spotify has agreed to change its rules on playlists following the release of a thousand track protest album by the indie band The Pocket Gods. Now, one of the interesting things as well that came around this is a meeting between the frontman of The Pocket Gods, Mark Christopher Lee, and Spotify. It ended with Spotify saying that they were going to up the amount of money they give to bands, but only once they had upped their current subscription price. Now, given that they are hemorrhaging users, it's got to be said this feels like a bad time to be upping your subscription price. Although I do know it doesn't say when they're going to do it, just that they are going to do it at some point. I think that's a really interesting point because I did some back of the napkin maths and based on average number of minutes listened per day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, works out they could give, they could realistically, if they put the price up by a pound, they could give every listen, every individual track, 7p, 7 cents. But I also noticed that one of the reasons Spotify investors are concerned is because their average revenue per user is falling. And that would be one of mine that I think there's an investor problem coming up that over the last six, seven years, Spotify's average revenue per user is falling. Now, the problem with that number is that is your growth multiplier. 
So unless they can show, and it may be why they've stuck with podcasts so aggressively, is because unless they can show revenue increasing per user, they're going to struggle. So I get a price rise and why that would make sense from an investor perspective. So I completely agree with you, Stuart. I think it is the wrong time to change the price because effectively in the near term, the competitors are very aware that Spotify is weak. And if they're not pouncing on that, they're not looking after their own investment. Um, But a pound rise would significantly increase what they could pay to musicians, but they'd also have to then factor in quite a large rise to make investors happy. So although they could theoretically do 7p per song, realistically, I think if it's less than a penny, that's going to come, that's going to be a problem because that's not even going to be, it's only just going to be in line with Amazon and Apple and YouTube music. It is interesting because they obviously don't pay for podcasts. I mean, they pay for Joe Rogan, apparently, but the likes of us, they make their money potentially through people looking for exposure, looking for getting stuff out there. So I'm guessing it's in their interest to push people away from music as much as possible and into podcasts. I would be interested to know how that works with current listeners, whether there is a a group of people who use Spotify for podcasts, because would you pay for a service that you can get for free from other places? I would agree with you. I think I'd also point out that Spotify makes adverts in podcasts mandatory, even for subscribers. So you're paying for a service that makes you listen to ads. And I think that's always been the basics of why you pay for things. If Spotify ups its price and continues to put adverts in things like podcasts, then what happens next? Do we see masses of people leaving Spotify for platforms that don't do that? Especially when you don't get adverts through, say, Google Podcasts. One of the things they got fundamentally wrong with the Joe Rogan crisis in this instance was not looking at the different audiences and tailoring the messaging and the response to the different audiences. And it feels like now with this story, we're starting to see that almost become the perfect storm that actually they have clearly not done any work onto what are our audience's priorities. So what do our investors want from us? What do our stakeholders, our musicians want from us? What do our subscribers want from us? And how do we communicate with them? feels like they're just taking a blanket approach to all of their audiences at once and not analyzing their priorities. So that's not coming through in their communications, but actually when you see this story come to light about the price increase, and like you said, Andrew, they're gonna be stuck between what the artists want and what the investors want, and it's gonna put them in a really awkward position. That feels like they're not even looking at audiences at a strategic level, never mind the communications level. I think we've questioned throughout these conversations some of the decisions that spotify have made looking at it with our own expertise is something that allows us to to maybe see it in a way that others don't but it just feels wrong it feels very very badly done and it doesn't feel like any of us from all of our different corporate backgrounds and different routes into marketing none of us would have taken these decisions i would agree with you i I think none of us would have done. And I think partly for the reason Sean just said around audience, we'd have assessed who we were talking to. But not only that, there's that element of don't make the same mistake twice, learn from your mistakes. And in terms of 
combining that with what Sean said about audiences, that ability to see who it is you are talking to and break that down to why we would care and why they would care is why we wouldn't make the mistake or why we certainly wouldn't make most of the mistakes made there. There is a target audience. What's the first decision? And immediately you know that off the top of your head. Spotify failed to make that jump because they didn't say, right, we are going to do this thing that makes sense for investors. How do we then sell it to our audiences? And in failing to make that jump, didn't do the basics of who are our audiences and what do they like? I know we've already talked about staff, but that's their staff or below 34. They literally, we are the ethical marketing podcast and they sell, Spotify sell their come work for us on values that they then came out and said they didn't believe in. That is a failure of audience, surely. That appears to be something that follows big tech companies all the way through. I remember Google trying to sell themselves as an ethical sort of stick it to the man, slightly different company. I guess it's a problem when a company becomes a certain size and you've got shareholders that you need to to answer to, that you cannot really be that kind of punk young upstart. One of the things that when we started talking about doing these kind of interviews for Ethical Marketing Podcast was that people listening could relate to it with their own issues. And I think this is a masterclass for small businesses and big businesses about what not to do. And I think it's really important that people look at this and don't just say, oh, Spotify is unique in this because anybody could have made these mistakes. They just happen to make one after another consistently. And nobody seemed to want to say, you know what, we've made three mistakes in a row. Maybe we should take a look at what we're doing before we do the next one. I agree. And one of the things I think people can take away is if you are a head of comms or a director of communications, a large proportion of your job is to say no. You're not there to agree with your CEO. You are there to steward your brand and protect your brand. And when people start making the wrong decision at that point, they prioritize their job over what's best for the company. And then you see resignations like, for example, the fact the head of communications for Spotify UK and Ireland has resigned, having only been in the post since November 2020. And there are a number of comms roles now within Spotify that are appearing. I don't think they needed somebody like me. I think because of their scale, they probably did. But actually, on a day-to-day normal business level, with when most businesses in the UK have somewhere between 2 and 80 staff, we're not talking huge organisations. The director of comms is the most senior representative of the brand there is. And whether you're actually a manager, a head of, a director, if you are the most senior comms specialist within your organization, even if you are only the marketing assistant, if you are the only voice at the table, part of your job is to speak up. Obviously, the higher up the ranking you go, the more you can speak up. And I understand that. Do not start screaming at directors <laughs> if you're a marketing assistant. Please don't. <laughs> and don't write it. But certainly at C-suite level and D-suite level, in terms of senior managers, directors, if you're not pushing back on that and thinking, what is the risk to our brand? You're missing 
the possibility of the damage. And I think if somebody had pushed back against David Eck, the Spotify CEO, and actually just sat him down and said, right, okay, we can't treat everybody the same and your message will not work with vast quantities of our audiences, that would have been a huge step forward. It sounds like it might not just be a comms issue, but a company culture issue. I think you're probably right. I think you... CEOs have a tendency to hire the type of people they want to listen to, or rather listen to or or ignore. But I think it also is about the talent pool of what experience those people have had. I call myself a crisis PR because I've done hundreds of them. There is actually weirdly a minimum standard, an accepted minimum standard to being a crisis PR, and that is five. But it's actually not five. Five is the number that most people get to when they have the sensation. But to be a crisis PR, the general rule is it's the day you wake up in the middle of a crisis and you just go, ah, it's another day at work. Because up until then, you are running on pure adrenaline. And when the adrenaline wears off and you can still do it and you can still make the sensible decisions and suppress the panic and it just becomes your job, then you're a crisis PR. And Heads of comms, directors of communications, large parts of their job is to have that reaction in that moment because they've been around the block. The head, the director of communications for an international company should have some level of crisis experience. So, Shan, what would you do if you were parachuted into that position as a marketer with some ethical background? I think what's so frustrating about this whole crisis is that at every single stage it could have been avoided and every move they seem to make now is just digging them further in rather than pulling them back out and I think actually they really need to go back to basics on this one and zoom right out on it and go right back to the beginning of where did this go wrong and it's not just the content moderation and the debate about are they a producer or a platform or what are they it's the debate about the audiences and who are they talking to and I think the first job for anybody coming into that role is to segment those audiences properly identify what their priorities are identify what the brand's values actually are and how that relates to those audiences and then come up with a comm strategy for each audience that takes into account the damage that's been done by this and starts to analyze what risks are on the horizon and how to mitigate them. Sean mentioned back to basics and I snorted because that brings us very nicely on to Joe Rogan and his apology. I very much felt it was circa 1992 back to basics for those old enough to remember. (laughs) Apologize at the gate, stood in my front garden apologise, 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 and then come back out next week and do the same thing again. It was rather old school and a little bit tacky. But I'd like to open the floor to both of you of what you felt of that and what, how Spotify could have dealt with it differently, because I know we're trying to concentrate on that differently element. What was it that made that not quite work? And what should they have done differently? A lot of it for me was about 
the timing. It's about the fact that it took them one so long to do anything. When you have a letter from hundreds of medical professionals saying there's a real issue here and you need to take note of it, you probably should take note of it and not just hope it's going to go away. They kind of waited until everything went nuclear almost before they thought, oh, do you know what? Maybe we should do something. And to me, the kind of biggest mistake started with that because they let it run for days and days. I think it was, there was 10 days or I think between their note going in from the medical professionals and Neil Young deciding to pull his music. So it didn't happen within hours. They had time, they had time to, to, fight, to fight the fire and they didn't. They just left it. I think that's a really good point for listeners is actually, we've said it before, almost say it again, you've got time to address stuff. You don't have to panic and respond immediately, but also don't go on holiday for a week. I think is there's there's a middle ground. I mean, where you can actually do it right and do it once. And if they had done that, we literally would not be recording this podcast. But what they did do after that gap was put out a statement from the CEO that took no accountability at all. And then an apology from Joe Rogan that wasn't really an apology and was essentially him admitting that he has no control over his own show and the content that he puts on there. So nobody actually took accountability for this at any point, but they tried to frame it as two apologies and hopefully that's enough and we can all move on, which doesn't wash. I would imagine that very few people who listen to this podcast will be involved with companies who were so completely clueless about the comms as Spotify appear to have been. And I think that's why it's worth talking about. I think a company the size of Spotify are a company who you think will have a team that will know how to deal with this. And yet it just was so inept. <laughs> I would have expected it from a local county council. That's the kind of level I think I would have expected this from. And one thing I would say there is that county councils, at least, understand what internal communications is. And I think this is a really good point for medium-sized businesses, that once you get above about 50 staff, it is no longer possible to communicate with them all. Internal communications becomes a priority because that becomes that person that does that becomes your mouthpiece. The number of businesses I have worked with where they just do not get the internal comms right because there is nobody. I'm not a believer in the marketing, advertising, PR are all separate individual things. I believe they should be run by one comms director and often with a head of running all of that as well. I think the breakdown needs to be quite low down the scale because in small to medium-sized enterprises, you can't afford to have a a wide team, but also you don't get the cross-working that you get under other circumstances. With with single strategic heads of, you get really nice cross-working because somebody's in charge of the strategy. But coming back to internal comms for a moment, there is an element that internal comms is the exception to that rule because it is not outward facing. It does not need some grand strategy. It just needs to be open, honest, and straightforward in its communications because you are talking to your staff, but you still have to brand your communications. You still have to talk in a brand voice internally. And once you get to about 50 staff or certainly anything above that, it becomes a massive strategic risk for you because drop-off rates 
increase exponentially with working from home as well that's now the primary way that your your staff interact with your business the business they work for other than their managers and let's be honest here we've all experienced a bad manager at some point or other so that internal comms is your safety net and if it's done well can increase productivity but also increase staff loyalty And that's not about pumping out meeting after meeting of come join this live stream of my CEO talking nonsense for three hours. It's about saying this is what we've done. I'm a big believer there in content through process. Talk about the good things you've done. Talk up the value of the things you've achieved and have your internal communications person work across the organization, even at 50 people, even if it's just a couple of hours a week to send one email where they go, oh, has anybody got any ideas of what's been going on? What can we talk about that's good? Because otherwise, what you are is a nothing entity that exists in the void, especially with working from home, when nobody has any fundamental loyalty to you anymore. Especially when any niceties of working from the office, like free food, Friday night drinks, et cetera, et cetera, and the ping pong table, have all gone. I mean, the example I'd use there is the office environment created by that juice company, Innocent Smoothies. They pride themselves on that office environment and that relaxed, you can play ping pong, have some free juice, etc. But all of that value disappears the moment nobody's in the office. And coming out of the pandemic, staff are less loyal to the business and more loyal to what's best for them. You start playing around with values at that point. And do we not end up in a position where they go well I'll stick around until I find something that suits me better once you sell out your values to your staff what loyalty did they have to you if they're not actually present this has been an absolute masterclass in not only how to not do communications but how to get ESG wrong as well and I think for any company of any size what this demonstrates is that your ESG cannot exist just in a silo where a very small team are responsible for it and it's a nice to have that you write press releases about it has to be fully embedded and if it's not then you can't use your values in talent attraction and retention because that is going to backfire on you the second you make one misstep in terms of doing something strategically that doesn't align with your values and putting profit above those values your staff are going to call you out and your foundations are going to crumble. And I think that is potentially the next big crisis that is just starting to brew for Spotify. I'm loving the fact that we've all named different problems. That says a lot about their ESG, doesn't it? Speaking about what we've been talking about with regards to company culture, I think it's really important. It doesn't matter the size of your company, whether it's one person, five people, 20 people, 100 people, the way that that culture is run can affect everything. It can affect how people view you and it can affect how your comms work. And it's really important to try and get that right, try and get something that fits your values and to stick with it and to be aware of that. So surprisingly, we haven't actually talked that much about the catalyst for this whole crisis, which was Joe Rogan. Obviously, we've touched on his apology a little bit. Spotify said they're not going to pull his podcast, presumably because of the sheer amount of money they paid for it. They're going to put content warnings on it and they have pulled some episodes, I believe. So they're clearly going to maintain some sort of relationship with Joe Rogan. So where does that leave them in terms of this crisis? So we've covered most things, but we've not really touched on Joe Rogan's video response 
Instagram response and how we feel about the decision making to get to a point where that existed and maybe what could have been done differently. I think they obviously made the decision that they were going to make him the accountable one. But what his apology did was effectively say, I'm not responsible for the content in my show, which was the same line that Spotify had taken, having put their branding all over the show and therefore effectively making themselves responsible for it. They then claimed no responsibility and he took no responsibility. And it just feels like they made the decision that he would be the right person to be put in the spotlight and fingers pointed at him and he has to apologise. But then they did no message management over what that apology should look, feel or sound like. Again, not thinking about their audiences and what that needed to do. I actually think that probably alienated a section of his audience because part of his brand is that he's unapologetic and he's controversial. So I think they've undermined what they were achieving by bringing him onto the platform in alienating that audience. They've obviously alienated their wider audiences by not managing this whole situation very well. And then they've put him there and got him to deliver this message that they haven't had any control over. They haven't vetted it beforehand. They haven't media trained him. So it's just not delivered in a way that achieves the outcomes that they were looking for with that. And that has in part been one of the factors that has allowed this crisis to roll on and on and on and feel like nobody is really taking accountability nobody is really committing to resolving this and they're actually fundamentally not really sorry for it and it just all kind of read that they don't really care do you think that there was a feeling that because he was an entertainer and because he was a comedian was used to audiences that he'd be able to handle it without the requisite media training that that because he was a viewed as a good podcast host he'd be a good front person to ride out the they seem to think that because he could present himself in a certain way in a certain set of circumstances that he would make for a good spokesperson now i would compare that to the ceo of bp after the deep water horizon spill just because somebody is good in a specific area doesn't mean they're going to say what needs to be said or know how to say what needs to be said when the proverbial hits the fan and actually if spotify had given rogan a spokesperson you wouldn't have seen the damage that rogan did to his own audience base but also he wouldn't have ended up undermining his position and Spotify's position. If they'd message, if they'd managed that message more effectively, they could have made that apology stick and been good enough. Because Rogan apologized without actually taking responsibility. Nobody wants an apology that doesn't take responsibility. And I think the fact that he is, his whole brand is unapologetic maybe pitching it at that kind of surface level Spotify were hoping that it would look like they had taken action by making him apologize even though his brand is unapologetic and that would wash as kind of enough action to get them through this do you think Spotify thought it through to that degree that in itself is the problem here they're not doing that deep level thinking about what are the risks how do we respond to them and what happens next you should be a few steps ahead of this crisis but they're not it feels really strange to believe in this day and age that a company the size of Spotify can be so rudderless. And I think that's the reason that we're talking about it. I think the reason this has become a big thing for us and the reason why we've chosen 
we need to dedicate a whole podcast to it instead of doing our usual thing is because we felt this was really big and really important to talk about because it was like a masterclass in what not to do. And as I said, part of what we try to do with this podcast is to give you some advice and, and hopefully let you see how other people are doing things to either give you some inspiration or to potentially tell you what not to do. And please, please, please don't take any inspiration from this. That seems like a good place to end it. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Sean. It's been a really interesting conversation and we will be back soon. If you've enjoyed this, please hit that subscribe button. This podcast was edited by Stuart Mitchell. The music was by Joe McCafferty. We look forward to seeing you for the next podcast. <laughs>